Welcome to Letters to Women, a podcast where we embrace and explore the feminine genius in our daily lives as Catholic women. I'm Chloe Langer, and in today's episode, I'm sitting down with Melissa Molesky, and we're talking about what St. Pope John Paul II meant when he called women sentinels of the invisible. I spent a lot of time researching what JP2 has said and written about women, and it wasn't until I read Melissa's new book that I even heard of the phrase, Sentinels of the Invisible. I loved this conversation about the feminine genius in our daily lives and the stories of women throughout the life and the history of the Catholic Church. If you've ever wondered how the Catholic Church has championed the dignity of women, and you want to know more about what the feminine genius means for you today, sister, this letter is for you. We're welcoming to the show, Melissa Molesky. Melissa is a speaker, writer, and director of youth and young adult ministry. She regularly presents at faith formation conferences and parish retreats and consults on special diocesan initiatives. Melissa also serves as a catechist and director of religious education. She earned her master of arts in theological studies from Christendom College Graduate School in 2015, and she shares her mini adventures with her husband and their four kids. Melissa, welcome to Letters to Women. It's so good to have you on the show. Thanks for you for inviting me. I appreciate being here. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about your newest book, The Supreme Vocation of Women, and discussing what the Catholic Church has taught for centuries about the dignity of women. But before we dive in, Melissa, can you tell me about your story as a Catholic woman? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's kind of a windy story there. <laughs> There's so much to it, really. But um, so I started off about as far from the Catholic Church as you can get without actually being anti-Catholic, grew up around, uh, you know, loving family, um, a lot of fun, but the, the faith was very eclectic. So Jewish roots, Southern Baptist roots, Methodist, Unitarian, uh, I don't even know what else, <laughs> um, but not, uh, you know, not Catholic for sure. And it wasn't until I went to, to college and met a, a couple of Catholics that I really started to explore the Catholic faith and argue against it at first, but then it slowly, uh, just the Holy Spirit kind of, you know, gently wore me down until uh, <laughs> gently, not so gently sometimes, you know, wore, wore me down and and presented me with the truth to where I, I said, you know what, I have a choice to make, and I don't know that I can make any other choice but to say yes. And so I, I did, and I entered the church in 2003 with this family who kind of guided me and led me by my side. And this family eventually became my family. You know, I married um, son number five, or child number five, son number four. <laughs> and so they really did become my family and, and helped me grow as a Catholic. And then, you know, after my conversion, it just was gangbusters from there. I got into catechesis. I just fell in love with learning and sharing the, the faith, especially history and, you know, all the, the church, you know, church nerdy stuff. And I just, I, I love, I just loved it. And so I got, became a catechist and I fell in love with that. And we started our own family and it just, it blossomed from there and it kind of took a track. I, I realized, you know, 15 years later of, of marriage that my Catholic track, you know, in understanding and growth and, and living it was a combination of academic pursuits and pastoral ministry. So that's why I went for my master's and, and, and learned and just had so much fun reading and writing and, and growing in my own faith, but then also 
being able to share that with others as a, as a GRE and now as a director of youth and young adult ministry, doing those things, but also writing, um, you know, helping develop catechetical materials, speaking and getting people really excited about their faith and being able to look at the faith with fresh eyes. That is so, so wonderful to me and, and such a blessing um, to be able to give back and see that kind of thing in others that I feel myself. And so that's, that's the 90 second version <laughs> <laughs> of everything that happened. But just, yeah, it was very much an adventure. Oh, that's beautiful. I love too how reading your new book, which is published by Sophia Institute, The Supreme Vocation of Women, that book really beautifully sums up everything that you just shared, your love of research and reading and diving into the history of the church, but then also the beautiful way that you share that information and make it tangible and accessible. So can you tell me about what inspired you to write this new book? Oh, well, thank you I, for your that lovely compliment. I, I was inspired First of all, growing up surrounded by very strong and positive examples of womanhood. Mm. I, I mean, just incredible. And though I wasn't brought up Catholic, by the time I started exploring Catholicism as a young adult, my, my childhood experience kind of had me shaking my head and going, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> every, every time I read church documents, that talked about women and womanhood because it just, it, it it correlated so closely to what my own experience was. You know, I have to be honest, I was caught off guard when I started to meet others um, in and outside of the church who understood the church's position on women very differently, uh, intensely so in some cases. And, and so that instilled in me a long-simmering desire to to address these differences and possibly reconcile them because I, I could see the hurt that these differences of opinions or were causing, and it just it pained me to to see it, especially when my own experience was was such a positive one, and I know people are yearning for that. But it wasn't until I picked up Cardinal Sarah's book, God or Nothing, where he casually mentioned that John Paul II had called women sentinels of the invisible, that the Holy Spirit kind of kicked me in the butt and told me, now is the time to get to work. <laughs> you have things to do. Um, this is back in 2018, and I'll be honest, I had read what I thought was everything that John Paul II had written on womanhood, but I had never heard that phrase before. It's completely new to me, and I just, I was captivated by this phrase, but even more surprising, I tried Googling it. No one else had heard of it either, and so I was like, all right, Lord, I hear you. I became determined to figure out what John Paul meant by this. And, uh, you know, two years later, here we are. <laughs> no, I love that story because it's true. When I was reading through your book, this concept of Sentinels of the Invisible, I had like same, I was in the same spot. Like, I've read everything that he's <laughs> written. I thought for sure, but I've never heard that. And I think too, for a lot of women, when we think about what the Catholic Church says about being a woman, a lot of us mentally go to the space of writing and the life of John Paul II. So let's dive into that. So the the whole phrase comes from uh, a homily at Lourdes when he said, to you women falls the task of being sentinels of the invisible. So what what mm -hmm. in, in your writing of the book, what did you find that that phrase means? And then more importantly, I think too, how does that impact our daily lives as a Catholic woman today? That is, that is such a great question and a great point and such a, a needed thing that I think a lot of people are 
are really interested in trying to figure out, um, you know, if you take into consideration everything that John Paul II has ever said and written on the subject of women prior to this event at Lourdes in 2004, you come to the sense that sentinels of the invisible means that fundamentally women are guardians of God's image and likeness in the world. Um, you know, think about it. God, that's what? He's, he's unified. He's relational. He's true. He's good. He's beautiful. And John Paul II consistently tells women that it's falling to us to protect these things in the world and in people, most of all, because of our exalted place in creation. Which, what I think is particularly brilliant about this phrase and appropriate about it for our time, especially, is that it enables us and, and challenges um, us as Catholic women, but all women and all all men, to reexamine everything that we thought we knew about womanhood, and then think about how we then receive and process and respond to how the world frames our feminine nature and agency. So this is this is kind of like just blowing up the entire conversation that we've been having and starting fresh. Getting back to the absolute basics of what it means to be a woman, not just to to do womanhood if if that makes sense, but what it means to actually be a woman and then let from there flow what it means for us to act on that nature. That makes a ton of sense. Like knowing who we are and whose we are matters before we can know what to do. And and having that identity yes. solid before we act is so important to our daily life. Yes, absolutely. And also something I touch on a little bit in, in the Supreme Vocation is the idea of complementarity and what that means, really, really means. And it's not just the idea that, that men and women are different, like men can do math and girls can't do math and girls can cry, but men are not allowed to cry. You know, this is not this is not that kind of differentiation. It is it is something much more special and meaningful and, and beautiful and intentional and good than what we under you know, the world is trying to push as being different between the sexes, if that makes sense. But it also highlights um, the the amount of similarities that we have, that there is more that, that unifies us as a as a humanity, as a way of, of, of being. Um, so that too, I think, is an important addition to the whole conversation so that we are not talking over each other. We're, we are literally uplifting each other as an entire species. I think John Paul II speaks about this beautifully just as the dignity of the person and the dignity of, of who we are as human beings. And he communicates a lot about equality, the dignity of women through this truth of, of philo- the philosophical system of personalism. What does this understanding of personalism look like in John Paul II's life? And, and then how are we seeing this at work in the writings that we're, that we're talking about today? So John Paul II was introduced to personalism as a, as a young man, and it left such a deep impression on him. Uh, it really shaped his entire worldview. Um, at, at the time uh, when he was uh, a young man, it was a merging philosophical system. It, it put the human person at the center of 
study of, of inquiry as a valuable subject in its own right because people have this unique status in the world. And even, you know, philosophy um, and the sciences understood this. And for John Paul II, that really resonated so well with the truth that we have in the church, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And so, uh, you know, for John Paul II, I think he really keyed in on that. In addition, uh, you know, his intimate knowledge of St. Thomas Aquinas' philosophy of man really set a fire in John Paul II's mind and the Holy Spirit, again, just kind of burst through these connections that he was making and just creating this this body of work that was going to burst forward, um, you know, even before he became Pope, we started to see it. And on top of that, he had a great interest in St. John of the Cross, who's a lot, whose work, you know, we see a lot of of his work echoing in John Paul II's own work. And that, again, seems to solidify and give a specific direction to what we see, uh, what we, you know, John, what we know John Paul II ended up directing all of his energies towards um, and implying a personalism to the eternal truths of the faith, um, more specifically, the inviolable dignity of the human person. And so you have this this deep intellectual inquiry and capacity for this particular set of ideas, and it's coupled with his deep sensitivity to how awful <laughs> people can be to each other and how awful they are to each other. You know, he, he knew firsthand being in World War II era Poland, just just <laughs> the, just the heartbreaking awfulness that that people are unfortunately capable of. And so these things naturally just seeped into his whole personality and you see it in his writings and you see it in the way he he lived out his entire pontificate. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a coincidence that John Paul II is as well known for his concern for the poor and for the marginalized and for dialogue with other traditions and for feminism as he is for being unyielding in his adherence to tradition and defending the truths of the faith. Um, but more specifically, you know, we can see personalism at, at work in John Paul II's On the Dignity of Women um, is, a, is a big one that most people, they recognize that one. Um, and in theology, the body. And when he says, that the whole of society improves when women are fully allowed to share their gifts with the community. And, you know, it's things like that where, you know, we kind of sit back and we're like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not surprising here. But, but the fact that these things are, are, are considered revelations today um, because we're, that's how far you know, the world has separated itself from the truth that these are shocking and revolutionary statements. <laughs> but this, I mean, that's, that's how it's at work here. In these very simple representations of what is eternally true. I love to thinking about this aspect of the historical 
context in which John Paul II lived, where you have personalism and the, the different philosophical movements that he's encountering. You have World War II and his experience in Poland. You have the Catholic tradition of saints like Aquinas and and John of the Cross, and how they're all culminating beautifully. And God is such a phenomenal orchestrator that, that then we have this gift of John Paul II, and how all of those come to work and to play in what he's left us now um, in his body of work and, and in his sainthood. It's just absolutely beautiful to see all these things converging in his life. Yes, it is. It is wonderful to see how God works in, in all these things and <laughs> all these little steps. It, it is amazing. Amen. So, so let's dive into the historical aspect more, more of what the Catholic church believes when it comes to the dignity of women. So in your book, you share these incredible stories of women throughout both the old and the new Testament and in the Old mm-hmm. Testament, you share stories of women who prophesy the beauty of the Lord's message. And then you share the story of Our Lady. And then the women that we encounter in the New Testament, they all share in what you what you call a set of inclinations, protection, illumination, and relation. What do these three inclinations mean in the lives of women that we meet throughout Scripture, throughout the history of the church? Oh, yes. These are, these are very cool. It is like telling a story in reverse. So the cool thing is that they, these these women are are starting at the end, so to speak, and they're leading us to the beginning of all things. And so they start with the most um, visible thing, which is protection. And you know, if you think about it, the women in the New Testament, the Old Testament, and our Blessed Mother, obviously, they're protective of what matters to them. And so, you know, what matters to them? It's people, not things. It's it's their children. It's their own wrecked bodies. It's Jesus himself. It is people that matter to these women. Uh, people in their entirety and the integrity of their whole existence. They're saying that, the human person is valued and loved and deserving of our concern. Just right off by itself. And then through this, this, in, this inclination to protect what is so important, um, we come to illumination, um, where these women are shedding light on the reality that people have a dignity and and this value that you can't get from any earthly source it's not it doesn't come from it it's not dependent on it and so in the end the earthly considerations are not as significant as what comes from beyond um you know i i think i put it um how do they say it? Human worth is measured only by divine scales. That's how I put it, to just kind of put it into that perspective. And then, you know, you have the, the, the protection, which leads to that illuminating understanding. And then this illumination leads us to that end for us, which is actually the beginning of, of everything, which is the fact of our nature as being relational because it was created by God and made to be in his own image and according to his own likeness. And that is how we see 
God and how God reaches to us is through that relation. And so what we see in these women, what they're doing, what they're practicing is a living catechesis of what God is trying to preach through the prophetic witness of, of human life in the world. And so this is, <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing more than any words that they could have said. Maybe at first glance, when we think about the lives and the witness of the women of the Old Testament, Our Lady, and, and the women in the New Testament, we think, oh, you know, we'll go back to Genesis and start at the beginning, and then we'll get to where we are now, and, and we'll tell the story in order. But I love how you put this, that this is a story that we start at the end and we work our way back because the end of the story is the beginning of, of it, which is God. And he's been around for eternity. And it's absolutely beautiful to think that, yeah, that's just such a beautiful way to think of, of human history and catechesis. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's, it, it's, it's, I think it helps too when you, when we think of it that way, because we, it's easy to kind of intellectually grasp all that we've been given but then how we return it to God is, you know, because we are given so much, it's, it's our way of, of thinking about giving back what we've been given in our own way. And so if we start at the end and work our way backwards, then it's not so overwhelming, I think. Yes. Amen. It's much more, much more possible, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so throughout this, your book that you've written, you also talk about women who have lived this reality of the feminine genius in their daily life, daily lives. They continue this witness in their actions, but also most inherently in their being and who they are um, throughout the history of the church. So of the women in the communion of saints, especially the women that you share about in your book, do you have maybe one or two who especially have inspired you to live your life as a Catholic woman? Uh, well, you know, when I, when I was the first, uh, when I was a baby Catholic, <laughs> way, way, way back then, Really back then, I was taken very much by the example of Catherine of Siena, especially the fact that she was instrumental in returning the papacy uh, to Rome from Avignon. And just the idea that a, a woman of such humility and simplicity um, and lack of theolo theological training, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, she could become so influential just by her faith and her persistence. That really inspired me and, and resonated with me that I just, it gave me hope that I could do these things as well, no matter what tools that God saw fit to give me, that this is possible. Um, so she, she always has a special place in my heart. Um, but I also, St. Martha, is, she's my lady because because she's always so busy. She's always so busy, and you know she she's full of faith, but she kind of gets lost in the details sometimes. And she's trying to take care of everybody else, and you know sometimes forgets to to pray and to focus and to prioritize. But you know she listens when when Jesus speaks to her and remains with her and says, Hey, you know, it's, you know, come back to what's important. And she takes it to heart and she can still profess her belief. And, you know, through her, the dead can be raised, <laughs> you know? And so those, those, those two ladies, I, I think are very, 
very, very important in my life. And I'm grateful for their, their intercession and their, their example for myself. Catherine Ossian is one of my favorites. So I love hearing her. I always love hearing and talking about her story. <laughs> She's incredible. Yeah. I, I think her <laughs> example, amazing. I love her example too, because I think it, when it comes to today's society, when you think about the average person and perhaps what they think, or they have a stereotype about what the Catholic church believes about women. And most often that, that doesn't line up with the reality of what the church believes is that then you have examples like Catherine of Siena, who's this humble, beautifully simple woman who, like you said, she, she's not theologically trained. She doesn't have this, you know, list of, of accomplishments that we think about in worldly standards, but here she is this woman of incredible influence um, and just holiness. And, and she is one of the women who we revere in the Catholic church as a woman who lived out this feminine genius so beautifully. So it just seems like such a, yeah, yeah like someone an unexpected, um, just beautifully simple and good uh, woman to, yes. to hold in regard. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I have to feel a little bit for St. Bridget of, of Sweden, who I talk about in the Supreme Vocation, because she's a contemporary of Catherine of Siena. And her story parallels Catherine of Siena's in, in a lot of ways. But where Catherine of Siena succeeded, she seemed to fail a lot in her life. Um, in her in her missionary work, and it wasn't until after her death where the fruits of her labor came through. And so I that was something that I learned in, in writing writing the story. And so I, you know, I kind of give her a little shout out too, just because you know, even if we're not necessarily successful in what we're doing, if God is calling us to do it, uh, it will bear fruit. Either you know, at at some point it will bear fruit, whether we see it or not. Um, that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah. What a good reminder. I, yeah. I love her story. It's just this encourager or you, you may not see the, the seeds that you're planting come to fruition, but that doesn't mean that you need to stop planting them. Mm-hmm. Right. Amen. Right. Throughout our conversation, we've really been centering this around this theme that the feminine genius and living out life as the women that God has created us to be isn't necessarily about what we do from our nine to five or throughout day to day. It's really Mm -hmm. inherently about who we are. And I love this line from your book where you write, motherhood is not merely something a woman does. It is first and foremost, an internal disposition of the female personality. So what, what does living that disposition look like in our (laughs) daily life? But I love too, how you talk about this in the book, that it that it's not only a physical maternity, but it's also a spiritual maternity. So I'd love to hear more thoughts about that. Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, John Paul II says that the human person has been entrusted to women with the supreme vocation to guard over that image of God in us so that every person can be fully themselves as they were created to be. And so this this internal disposition Um, is very simply whatever a woman thinks or says or does to nourish and protect the human person with that reality in mind is living out her maternal disposition. So, you know, it's, it's so easy to think of motherhood as just the physical motherhood as a simple biological process of growing and giving birth to another human from our bodies, but in truth, it's like 1% of all that motherhood is. <laughs> it's just so, such a, such a tiny part of it. Um, you know, and I, I hate to 
to try and, and give specifics to answer your question because it is so easy to get caught up in all the tiny ways that a woman could live out her mater- her maternal disposition. And then, it, you know, we fall into this twisted game of comparison and potential shaming. If one group of women is doing a particular kind of feminine thing and another group of women is, is not, and it just, there's so much toxicity in that. And the, the world, I think, is feeding on that kind of toxicity and making it worse and exacerbating and doing these things to get us to just kind of go on that hamster wheel. And it makes me so sad. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, The Supreme Vocation, is I wanted to get us off of that particular hamster wheel. Um, because there's there's so much more to this conversation, so much more in, important and valuable and uplifting, uplifting things to talk about, um, especially with our, our universal maternal disposition that we all have. Um, but I will say that it's not a coincidence that women overwhelmingly gravitate towards professions in education or healthcare or social activism or community outreach, as well as having this desire to start families and create small groups in their parishes and do meal trains and things like that. You know, all of these things and so much more, they, they really speak to the, that maternal disposition that's just trying to come out in the specific expression of each of our individual lives. Just a reminder that when we get caught up in this comparison of, well, does my maternity, the way that I'm living out maternity, look like how this person's living out maternity, or is she doing it better than myself? How we, lo- how much we lose when we do that, because in- yeah. instead, right, like every single one of us has a unique way to lean into that, um, and a unique way that the Lord's equipped us and is calling us to live out the maternity. But if we spend all of our time yes. looking around at, you know, how should I live out my maternity so that it looks like so and so's, then we're going to miss out on the unique yes. way that God's calling us to do it. Yep. It's easy to say, yeah, Melissa. It's awful, it's so awfully, hard yeah. to, <laughs> awfully hard to live. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, moms who are ashamed for bottle feeding without anyone knowing whether you know they have some kind of condition where breastfeeding is so difficult for them and painful, and they're trying and they're trying and they're heartbroken, but they can't, and they feel like they're not really mothers because they can't do this one little thing. And not the fact that they love their child so much that they're doing whatever they can to feed their child. Um, or even, you know, if we're going back in history, the, the whole idea that a woman could not choose to become a, a religious and dedicate her life to Christ, that she was giving up her femininity. <laughs> or, or, you know, even women who are called to, to work, to serve the, the public good in some capacity, um, you know, they're shamed for that without anyone knowing the circumstances or, or, or whatnot. And so this stuff, I just, I, you know, I pray so fervently that we can start conversations where this stuff comes to an end yes. at some point, sooner Amen. rather than later. <laughs> Amen. What a beautiful world that will be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. So in this conversation, we are scratching the surface of the beauty that this new book, The Supreme Vocation of Women, contains. And so if listeners want to keep diving into it with you, where can they find a copy of The Supreme Vocation of Women? 
Oh, that is so easy. If you go to www.sophiainstitute.com backslash supreme vocation, it will pop right up and be in your hot little hands as soon as you order it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you can also go to Amazon if you want as well. Um, you know, the Amazon has everything. So. It does. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, you know, Melissa, this podcast is dedicated to exploring what the feminine genius means. And, and throughout the three years that it's been in production, I think the thing that I've learned the most is what you've said already in this conversation, which is, every single woman lives this out so uniquely in her daily life. And so one question that I love to ask every woman that comes on the podcast is is this one, Melissa, how do you live out the feminine genius in your daily life as a woman, especially as a woman encouraging other women to recognize their identity as a centennial of the invisible? Oh my goodness. Um, You'd have to ask the women who know me. Yes. (laughs) I honestly, I, you know, I I wouldn't even know how to answer that (laughs) question. I, you know, I, You know, you can call my mom, call my best friend. No, I, <laughs> no I, I don't know that I intentionally think about or, or do things to specifically help women to be sentinels of the invisible. I, you know, I, I try my best to be open and, and docile to God's will for my life. And I try my best to carry my crosses with grace or at least some level of snarky humor <laughs> you know that's my that's my outlet there um but i you know i've been blessed with an incredible an incredible an incredible husband um four fiery and lovely children and some pretty fabulous professional opportunities to share the faith that, that i love so much and so i i guess my hope is that somewhere in the midst of me living my life um, those who God brings into my orbit see something of him there and, you know, may be inspired themselves by it. That is beautiful. I love your first reaction of you would have to ask the women in my life. Like that's, uh, that is beautiful because how true, right? How women have this disposition to see the other and, and to honor her and her story. And I think that the women around us see our lives in such a different light than, than we see when we look in the mirror. And that is an absolutely gorgeous reminder of the beauty of women in our own lives. <laughs> That's so good. Well, Melissa, thanks so much for coming on Letters to Women and sharing your story. This has been an absolute joy. And, and thanks for sharing about your work with the Supreme Vocation of Women and for, I know, all the hard work that went into that. The creation of that book is absolutely gorgeous. So thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Chloe. This has been a blast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Letters to Women. If you know a woman who would love to listen in on this conversation about what the feminine genius means for our daily lives, could you send this one her way? Head over to oldfashionedgirlblog.com or just scroll down in your podcast player to access the show notes for today's episode, which includes a link to Melissa's new book, The Supreme Vocation of Women, and the books Melissa and I mentioned as we talked today. Make sure you're subscribed to Letters to Women wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on any new content. That's all I have for today's episode. So until next time, be not afraid.